missed you the last couple weeks. Thanks to all who kind of navigated the rough waters with us with the different services and things. And we just appreciate your prayer. I mean, week by week, day by day, we want to be led by the Spirit in the leading of this church, no matter what the issues are or no matter what we're in. Uh, we know what man's wisdom often could be, and, uh, and we just want to make sure that uh, it's the Lord's wisdom at any given moment. Um, and so here we are today, and uh, it's really good to see faces that I haven't seen in a few weeks, and, and to go through uh, this awesome book of the New Testament with you, the fourth evangelist, um, the fourth gospel, John chapter 6, verse 22 through 71. It's this uh, text where we see Jesus is uh, the bread of life. Uh, you've heard of Wonder Bread. Well, he's the true Wonder Bread. You've heard of uh, Dave's Killer Bread. Uh, he's much better than Dave's Killer Bread. Uh, you know, he's the, the bread of life or the loaf of life. And we start out this section just kind of following up uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 early on in the chapter. And then uh, following that, Jesus walking on the water and rescuing the disciples from, uh, you know, what could have been a shipwreck and was most likely going that direction um, into a, a watery grave for the twelve. At least they thought so. Jesus said, head on over to the other side, and that was where he intended for them to go. And now we come to this uh, third section of the chapter, this bread of life passage with people seeking after Jesus. After the feeding of the 5,000 and the crossing of the sea, there's some confusion as to where Jesus even is in the region of the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and so verse 22 says, On the following day, this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000, this is the day after Jesus walked on the water, uh, the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so uh, this is just an interesting little passage that shows there was confusion as to where Jesus even was. Uh, man, we were just over here on the uh, east side with Jesus. He just multiplied fish and loaves. We watched him go up on the mountain to pray. We watched him send his disciples out onto the sea. And then we wake up in the morning and we can't find Jesus. And the disciples' boat isn't here. Uh, but as they would get to Capernaum, Jesus is there and the disciples' boat is there. What happened? Apparently the disciples' boat was really easy to discern, you know, out of all the boats, you know, it probably had a Christian fish decal on it, I'm guessing, you know, on the back, you know, maybe a boat name, River of Life, you know, um, maybe one of those stickers, you know, in case of rapture, boat will be unmanned or something like that, you know, stayed up really late thinking of these disciple bumper sticker thing. you guys aren't giving me very much, come on, all right, WWJ, okay, okay, um, but, uh, you know, somehow they knew which one was the disciples' boat, and they went out on it. Jesus was over here, they're over here, but Jesus is over here. So we all know that Jesus ended up, you know, hopping on the water skis and going on over to the middle of the sea, calming the storm, getting in the boat. And John tells us that just like immediately, miraculously, they were, bink, 
you know, on the other side of the sea. It was, a, it was a miracle that the sea was calm. It was a miracle that they, you know, did a quantum leap or whatever, you know, and ended up over on the other side in Capernaum. So there's a lot there that's, you know, not all that important except that the people were seeking after Jesus. And so verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And so kind of like we often have, you know, when we're shopping in the store and we come across someone that, you know, it's kind of a, what are you doing here, you know? And it's like, oh, I'm shopping, you know, kind of an awkward, like, what, when did you get here or how did you get here? And, you know, it's kind of an opening of a nice, polite conversation, um, but Jesus just goes right past the pleasantries. You know, he's like, enough for small talk, right? And he just goes right into um, the deep things that needed to be talked about. In verse 26, Jesus answered them and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so there were, had been plenty of signs and uh, plenty of things that pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. Um, but they really loved this one he did yesterday of feeding their bellies, you know, putting a little gas in the tank. And uh, they really liked that, and they wanted some more of that. That really testified that he was probably the prophet who is to come and to take over the, uh, from the Romans. And, um, and yet they missed what was eternally significant about what Jesus had done when he multiplied those fish and the loaves. They had been looking for something temporary, and Jesus wanted to give them something eternal. And so essentially, he gets right into the conversation by saying, hey guys, yesterday you pigged out like animals, and now you're back because you think the buffet is going to be open again, but there's something deeper that I want to give you that you're missing. You're missing from our time together. And so verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so the the people, just like us, they were laboring for food that could be destroyed or that would rot or would fill your belly for six hours and then you're ready for the next thing. There had been misplaced striving for temporary things. And Jesus often is telling these people this. I mean, if you look back in John chapter 4, verse 14, he tells uh, the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water, all right, that I'll give him will never thirst again. And the water that I'll give him will become a in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So he tells the woman at the well, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. Drink of the water that I'm bringing and you'll never thirst again. And he tells the people in this chapter, chapter six, hey, eat of the bread that I'm preaching, eat of the bread that I am, and you'll never hunger again. It will be eternal. It'll never be destroyed. And there's really great application for us in Prineville, just as there was for the people back in Capernaum in Jesus' day. We've got to ask ourselves, how much time and effort 
do we put into the eternal things? Into the things that are good for our soul, that are good for our eternal future. Versus the things that are temporary, that will pass away, or even those things that may even lead us to the pit of hell. Some of us have been distracted from the kingdom of God. We've been distracted from what the gospel is doing in us and intends to do in us. And we're just living after just the the pleasures of this world that are so temporary. The glory of this world that is so temporary. Um, You know, the, the luxury of this world and the popularity of this world that fades, um, you know, every week, every month, every year. Some of us today, we come and our life is out of kilter because we're laboring for the bread that perishes. And you know what that is. And I've even been praying that the Lord would touch your heart this morning towards the beginning of this sermon so that you would be able to say, you know what, Lord, I already see it. I already know what that bread is. And Probably for most of it, it's not actually bread. You know, you're not like, man, this is really hitting home today. I've been really all about bread. You know, I mean, we all love a little warm bread, right? You know, but, uh, but I think that there's other things that we've been trying to, to satisfy and to fill the longings of our hearts, you know, uh, to fill the pleasures of our senses, um, you know, to bring the comfort, bring the fulfillment and the satisfaction. But you, you know it. I mean, it lasts an hour. And it's gone. It lasts the night, and it's gone. A day, a week, be honest, I mean a month, it's gone. And you can put your hope in all kinds of things, and pretty soon, how quickly those things, you just realize they don't really satisfy. They don't really fill that void. And Jesus is telling you today, from from the scriptures, from 2,000 years ago, Stop laboring for the food that perishes. Don't work for that. Don't toil for that. Don't sweat for that. Don't put your money and your resources and your time and your energy. Don't let it be the the main factor even in your conversation because it perishes. Look for the things. Live for the thing. It's Jesus. Just in case you're wondering, what is this thing you speak of? Jesus. All right? He's the bread of life. It says here that it's the thing that the Son of Man will give you. Jesus will give you this fulfillment, this satisfaction. We know this because God the Father has already approved His ministry, the end of the verse tells us, and set His seal on Him. He's put His mark on Him. And this, all throughout the New Testament, it goes through how it was the Lord the Father that anointed the Lord the Son. He's anointed Him for this ministry to fill that void in our souls. And so verse 28 says, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Seems like a good question, right? Oh, oh, they're like responding and they want to know what to do. And you know what? This is often the question we get uh, from our church, Americans. You know, just hardworking country folk in rural Prineville, you know. You guys want to know, like, What do I got to do to work here? What do I got to do to do something? Rory, just tell me what to do, okay? I got my notes. I got my notepad. You know, I got a note on my cell phone. And I want you to just lay out my three to ten step thing, program, that will make my life better and bring that satisfaction and fulfillment and make me feel right with God, okay? It's the, you know, it's the mind of a really practical person. 
But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the gospel, practicality like this can never come first. A to-do list is the last thing that you need. And don't you love, all you that are wearing cowboy boots today, you can look down on the end of them, and what do they have up at the top? They got this wonderful thing right here. You guys see that? You can pull your boot on with it. But it's not designed for you to pull yourself up with. You've heard of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? You can't do it, all right? That's what this practicality is. It's like, oh, I'm up in the morning, and I just got my boots on, and you look like an idiot, okay? Stop doing it, okay? Jesus says it a little nicer in the way that he responds to this. But he says, all right, this is the work of God, verse 29. You want something to do? Write this down. Take a little note to remind you in case you didn't know. Okay? This is the work of God that you believe. That you believe on him or in him whom he sent. It's wonderful that you want to work for God. But you've got to start from the right place. We don't work to appease God. But because of the gospel and the work that God's done for us, we respond to him with faith in him and trust in him and resting in what he's done. Saying you are right, your ways are right, you're worthy of every ounce of trust out of this heart towards you. And now I want to work for you just to worship you or to please you, not to appease you, not to be right with God, not to justify myself, but because you are worthy of this sweet aroma of a life lived out of faith in you. Essentially, Jesus says, just believe. Just believe. Verse 30 says, therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? We want to see the sign. You might even, if you got a little pen, underline the word it there. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? To those people here who just need the next bit of evidence... And then I'll believe. You'll never be satisfied unless you just look at Jesus. You are under the notion that seeing is believing. When the reality is, believing is seeing. Trusting in Jesus. Taking him at his word. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. When you see Jesus today, look at him and say, yes, I believe you. Not, I want to see something outside of you, Jesus, and then, you know, and then maybe. To the apostles, any other notion would be considered blasphemy. Verse 31, the Jews go on to say, these are the Galilean Jews Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread 
from heaven to eat. So it appears they want some more bread. And they're kind of getting into this, okay, um, so Moses gave us bread day after day after day after day in the wilderness, and, uh, and you gave us bread um, like one day. So, I mean, if you want us to believe you, then alakazam, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, or something like that, you know? And Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, verse 32, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. They were in need of a little bit of a history lesson, that it wasn't Moses that brought the manna down. It was the father who brought the manna down. And it's the father again who sends down the bread. Jesus is going to say in just a little bit, I'm the bread of life. He has sent this bread down so that if you would partake of Jesus, you'll never hunger again. It will be everlasting nourishment, satisfaction, fulfillment. It doesn't perish. It doesn't rot. It doesn't get stale. It doesn't get mold. And there's no crust on it. Okay? Those of you who can appreciate that about a good good piece of bread, right? Uh, No crustiness with Jesus, all right? Uh, And so he says, a little history lesson, it wasn't Moses that brought the bread, it was the Father, and now he's giving a true and better bread, me. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And this also sounds like a good response. This is almost like the woman at the well, and hey, if you drink of this well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. And so she says, well, give me this water that I don't need to come and draw all the time. Uh, this is sounding pretty good. And Jesus keeps the ball rolling a little bit in, you know, in pointing her towards the gospel. So she really understands this life that he gives. And so same thing here in verse 34, and they're like, Lord, give us this bread all the time. We want this bread that God has sent down into the world. Like, what's it look like? Okay, so it was manna back in Exodus 16, uh, so it was kind of like, um, you know, like a, a dew type of a thing that would come down, you know, and really fluffy, you know, and tasted like wafers and honey, you know, and it was, it's been called angel's food, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay, so that's what Moses did. Now that's what Exodus 16 shows. It's like, so what are you going to do? You know, what's it going to be like? Give us this bread. And then Jesus just rocks their world by telling them in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is this bread. Jesus is the satisfaction. Jesus is there for the taking. But we're going to see it's up to the person to come to Jesus and to believe on him. So he's like, I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm, I'm the bread you're looking for, the loaf of life. You've been hungering for something that perishes I'm telling you, look for something eternal, and I'm right here. You eat of this bread, you'll never hunger again. Jesus is going to say this to them in verse, uh, not only verse 35, but in verse 48, in verse 58, that he is the bread. 
You've got to come to him. And it speaks of, if you would come to him, you'll never desire strongly this world again. The story is told, I believe it was of the French Revolution when the people were uh, hungry and, and, uh, not the revolution, different part in French history, and and, uh, the people would say, the people need bread. And she said, well, then give them cake. The people have no bread, well, then give them cake, you know. And, uh, and here in this world, you know, people are hungry and they're looking for something. There's no bread in their life. And so they try to fill it with cake or they try to fill it with something else or something that seems more nourishing or more satisfying. And Jesus says, no, you've got to come to me. You come to me, you'll never hunger again. It'll be the true and real protein bar. In Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3, It's this great passage that ties in so well, where Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Isaiah says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. You know, in this day and age, we have pleasures accessible at the drop of a hat, at the press of a button, at the turn into a drive through at the scheduling of an appointment, at the app on the phone. I mean, just like we live in this day of pleasure where we can get what we want, when we want, where we want it. We're pursuing the next best thing. We're pursuing that thing we really crave or desire. And Isaiah says to us, and he's, he's calling out today through the voice of Jesus, or Jesus is calling out through the voice of Isaiah, and he says, Ho! Kind of like, hey! Hey-o! You know, you listening? Why are you going and buying that bread that doesn't satisfy? And you're drinking that water that doesn't quench the thirst. Come to Jesus the well that never runs dry, come and buy the wine and the milk and the water without money. I mean, just come on in. It's free without price. Why are you spending so much and just bending over backwards for that temporary bread that's leading you to hell? It's leading your family down a path of just schism and division and fighting and warfare and it's never enough it'll never be enough it's disappointing your friends it's letting your community down it's separating you from god ultimately and it's never satisfying isaiah speaks so rightly to our hearts that we would listen to him And he would give us the sure mercies of David. Got to love that phrase if you know the story of David's life. The sure 
mercies of David. Was mercy a guy that needed any, or was David a guy that needed any mercy in his life? Anybody know anything about David's life? Man, what a guy, right? Little David, play on your harp. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, listen here, kid. You got to hear what David ended up going into in his life. It was not good, right? There were some adulteries, and there were some murders, and there was a whole lot of family drama that just got worse and worse and worse. And yet, because he was humble before the Lord, and he repented of his sin, and he confessed his sin before God and received forgiveness, that forgiveness was there before him. A clean heart was created within him. A right spirit was, was renewed within him. And he received mercy for all of his sin because he came to the right source of life. And if you would come to the right source of life today, that is Jesus, the bread of life. You will be given those same sure mercies that David was given. There is forgiveness for your sin today. There's forgiveness for your rebellion today. There is mercy for every wicked thought and rebellious intention that you've ever had in your entire life. Come, let us reason together, the prophet says. Though your sins would be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. What a wonderful day to see some snow on the ground, huh? I came to Jesus on that day that I realized my sin was like coal in me. And on that snowy day, Jesus washed it away and made me clean. Jesus mentions, though, that to receive this, there must be the coming to him. There must be the believing in him. As Martin Luther said, all that Christ has done for us remains no benefit to us when we are outside of him. And so many people, they kind of know the history and Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, you know, or he died on the cross and he's this far off character in human history. And I know there's like kind of like a nice vibe about him. But as you come today and you hear of life everlasting, forgiveness of sins, sure mercies, nourishment for your soul that is eternal and never fades away, that's all great and dandy, but it's not for you so long as you remain outside of Jesus. So long as you don't believe Jesus, so long as you don't receive Jesus and come to him. In verse 36 of our text, John 6 says today, But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. Remember the whole seeing is believing thing? And he says, you saw me, you've been watching me. It's no secret the miracles that I've been working around here. You've seen me, you've tasted that bread, probably still have a little of the crumbs still in that bread basket of yours, and you still don't believe. You don't need another sign. If we take this and go back to verse 35, that they have not yet believed, that means that they do not have fulfillment for their hunger, saturation for their thirst. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, 
I will by no means cast out. Now, I want to challenge you and encourage you as Bible students, as we're going through this text, we are going to be seeing as we're reading verses, theological truth, that means as we're studying God, there's truth, there's doctrine, that has to do with God powerfully, sovereignly, with all of his authority, calling people to himself. God is the great lover. God is the great leader. God is the great initiator. And before the foundation of the world, he has called people to himself. It's his initiative. It's his enabling. God, right? And equally true is that people must react to that. They must respond to that work of God. And it's underneath that arching principle of God sovereignty. And yet there's a very real, real choice that these individuals make to either receive or reject his beckoning. It's, there's a mystery to it. We even sang a song today, uh, something about, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of the mystery. You know, it's like, this is things that Christians have debated. Like, well, how can they have free will if God's over everything? And You know, and it really gets the juices squeezed out your ear canals, okay? It's still good to study, but, you know, we at Calvary have just learned to embrace the mystery. We love the sovereignty of God. We love that God calls people. We love that God elects people. And in the words of D.L. Moody, the 1800 evangelist, Lord, elect some more. Just save everybody, you know? And so we say also, come to Jesus. I can say to everybody here, come to Jesus. What if I'm not elect? Don't worry about it. Just come to Jesus. Well, I don't think I can come today because I'm not chosen. All right, that's a caricature of your own imagination, all right? Come to Jesus today. Verse 37, there's this truth to God's sovereign aspect that all that the Father gives will come. There's this mystery in that. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Or I will by no means reject. Are you here today? And I hear this all the time as I do ministry in Prineville and as I talk to just mostly Prineville guys, you know, the auto workers, the mechanics, you know, the ranch workers, the, you know, just guys that usually have some like staying on the collar and under the pits, you know, and they're like, and I'm like, hey, come to church. And they're like, I went into that thing, that building would fall down on top of me, you know, and I'm like, sweet, we have insurance, (laughs) right? (laughs) This electrical issue with the lights flickering on and off, that'd be done, right? Get it rebuilt. Okay, just wear hard hats into the sanctuary from now on. But it's like, man, if you come to Jesus, he's not going to reject you. If you come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you out. The Father calling you today, you run to the Father. He will by no means, that is emphatic, he will by no means, certainly not, expel you out. It speaks of Jesus' merciful, compassionate reception. 
John 10, 28 through 30, we'll be there in a few weeks. The great shepherd passage says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Has the Father given you to Jesus today? Is the Father calling you today? Do you hear bread of life that satisfies? Yes, please. Can I have some more, sir? Well, yes, you can. It's free and you can have it abundantly. You'll never be hungry again. So come, receive, believe with confidence. And also, not that you won't only be rejected, but no one's going to snatch you out of his hand. Verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We know this is true of Jesus from John 4, 34 a few weeks ago. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Right? And, and so we see that in Jesus. He says, I've come not to do my own will. I am all about just walking in the plan of the Father from eternity past. In verse 39, it goes on to say, this is the will of the Father who sent me. That all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. These are rich verses, you guys. These are verses about God's pursuit of you, God's sovereign initiative of you. Uh, the will of God for you, that he has given you to Jesus. Look at that in verse 39. That all that he has given me, all the people he's given me, this is the will that I would lose none of them. This is the will that you would be raised up on the last day. We talk a lot about the resurrection at this church. And you know what? We're just following in, in suit with Christianity since the beginning. Christianity preached the resurrection of the dead. It is one of the greatest joys and hopes that we have. And we have this assurance because Jesus rose from the dead. He was the first one. He paved the way for us and secured our hope of a resurrection ourselves one day. And it's the will of God that you not only not be rejected, not only be not snatched out of his hand, but that you be resurrected to be with him that day. And it says a similar thing in verse 40. Again, the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees and believes, he sees the Son and believes in him, would have everlasting life. And so Jesus is in the business of keeping those who come to him. We have a future hope because of that. Now what a great word from Jesus. So encouraging. Seems like he's nailing it, right? And, uh, and yet here come the opposition, all right? Let's go read on in the text, and we're going to see that uh, this, this was not the best sermon these people had ever heard, and they wanted something a little bit different to tickle their ears. Um, it says here, The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They'd be... Happy to hear about more bread on the table. That'd be awesome. Do that. But when he says, no, 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 I am the bread, and actually, 
have no beginning. I'm heavenly. I've came from heaven. I've been sent down from heaven. I'm not a mere man like you may suppose. And we know from the book of John, he's been showing that he's God, creator of the world, healer of men. And, uh, and they're just going to love that. They just love it when Jesus makes those kinds of claims, right? And so verse 42, they'd been grumbling, they'd been complaining, and they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Because this is a really great Christmas season passage, all right? Because we're, we're studying the incarnation here. We're studying the virgin birth here. First of all, they seem to not really know Jesus. They think his dad is Joseph the carpenter. When that was just his stepdad, his dad is the father. He calls the first person of the Trinity father. It's the relationship that's there. And so they knew Jesus' stepfather, and they knew Mary, but it, for, it appears they forgot the whole history of the virgin birth thing and all of that drama that happened back in Nazareth about 30 years ago. I mean, that was pretty crazy, right? And yet they relate to him merely on a human level. And so verse 43, Jesus answers and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. They'd been complaining, verse 41. He recognizes as their reasoning among themselves that it's murmuring. It's the Greek word gangazo. And if you're familiar with much about literature and, and English, it's an onomatopoeia. Okay? It's a word that sounds like it is. All right? Murmur, 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 murmur. Right? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Grumble, 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 grumble. Gangazo, gangazo, gangazo. If you're speaking Greek here today. They're murmuring and they're complaining. How is it that he says, I've come down from her murmur, murmur? Jesus says, don't murmur among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you catch in the divine sovereignty aspect of salvation, the really the big overarching umbrella of it all. No one, uh, no one comes to me. There's that man's part. They, they come to Jesus. But first of all, it comes when the Father draws that individual. There's an old hymn by Grindley Small that says, I found a friend, oh such a friend. He drew, or rather he loved me ere I knew him. This speaks of God's sovereignty. I found a friend, oh such a friend. He loved me before I ever knew him. He drew me with the cords of love and thus he bound me to him. I got no problem with a good love story. I got some friends, we were hanging out last night, and we were all sharing about how we propose to our wives, you know? And if you think about your love story, maybe yours went something like this, you know? Uh, you as the groom, perhaps, or as the husband, you looked across the room at that Christmas party or at that school or whatever it was, you know, and you looked over there and you said, man, she is gorgeous, you know? What a woman, what a woman of faith and I'm going to marry that, you know. And you just start working to just set up the perfect, you know, 
pickup line, you know, and then the perfect date, you know, and just, I am working things so that you are going to want to marry me and be with me forever. How dare you? All that planning and thinking about things and stuff without telling me first, you know, it's like, I mean, this is, this is the Lord. Oh, before the foundations of the earth, he loved you ere, he knew, ere you knew him, the Scottish say. Loved you before you even knew him. Was pursuing you. Was setting up a rescue plan for you. So that you would love him because he first loved you. And so there's this, uh, there's this pre part of it all. The Father is, and maybe even today, this is just for you. You need to know the Father is drawing you. Look out. Look out. He is a romancer, right? He is a Romeo. You hear what he did for you to rescue you? Man, your heart is going to beat faster. You're going to start sweating like, oh, this Jesus guy sounds kind of nice. He is. He's the best. Is he drawing you this morning? Come to him. Run to him. Say, I'm right here. And you will have that future hope that's been repeated. I think this is the third time. I've got it highlighted in pink in my notes at the end of verse 44 where Jesus says, I will raise him up on that last day. One of the hopes that you have coming to Jesus today is a future hope of resurrection. You won't stay dead. You won't stay dead. In fact, you'll never die. You'll die one time, this quick little boop. You know, and the little... And then right at the... You open your eyes again, you're in the presence of the Lord. And then a little secret, like a little while after that, there's going to be a work of God where he just raises your body up out of the ground and transforms it. So you've got those tries and buys and thighs that you've always wanted, maybe a little chiseled abs. And you'll be resurrected, your flesh resurrected to be in his presence, even here on this earth for all eternity. This is crazy stuff, I know. If you weren't here for Revelation, this might be new to you. And you're like, what is this heaven he's talking about? It's better than you ever imagined, okay? It's better than the far side cartoons could ever, you know, you know, clouds and halos, and I wish I brought a magazine, you know? That's the Gary Larson version. The biblical version is so exciting. He's going to resurrect you if you will come to him. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. For the sake of time, I don't have time to get into it, but what Jesus is talking about is that the prophets prophesied that there would be a new covenant, there would be a new hope, uh, there would be something that doesn't rely on our strength and that pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and just trying to obey to appease God but it would rely on the obedience of Jesus so that anyone that would come to him would have a new heart and a new mind. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. You guys, this is the hope of the gospel. You say, Give us a list of works that we can do so we can get working on it and start checking off those works today. And Jesus is like, ha, 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 He who believes in me, 
has everlasting life. He who believes in me, that's what pleases the Father. You've trusted in the perfect work of Jesus. You've trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You've trusted in the resurrection of Jesus and the life that that means for the world. That pleases him. Assuredly, I say to you, here's a couple easy memory verses, don't you think? You want to start memorizing the Bible? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Try it up there with John 3.16 if you know that one. Here's another easy memory verse for you. Look at verse 48. You can do this one, trust me. I am the bread of life. Pretty easy one, right? You're already halfway there for the rest of the Bible memorizing. Uh, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the bread of life, that loaf of life. Oh, the fathers, we all love them. You love them. Moses, yeah, what a guy. They all ate the manna and kaput, right? I'm telling you, you eat of the life that I bring, you'll never die. Already three times he said, I'll resurrect you on that day. Eternal life, everlasting life, everlastingly better than the manna that was in the day of Moses. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. It was D.A. Carson that says that John uses the term flesh here rather than body, the word body, found everywhere else in the New Testament when the Lord's Supper is clearly in view, suggests that John is not making any direct reference to the Eucharist that, say, the Roman Catholic Church understands, but that there may be a secondary allusion to the Lord's Supper is another matter. So what we begin to get into here, at this second, when Jesus begins to talk about eating of this bread, this bread, Bread that he gives that is his flesh in verse 51. It's the only place that the word flesh is used all throughout the rest of the scripture when we're talking about, let's say, communion or the Lord's Supper. It's body and it's in reference to the work that that body did for us, not the actual flesh itself. You're like, why does that even matter? You guys, it matters, okay? We're going to be getting into some verses that you're going to be like, there was some Donner Party stuff going on here. There was no Donner Party stuff going on. Okay, Jesus wasn't going there. You understand the whole of Scripture, and don't just pluck out a couple of verses here where it uses the word flesh and eat my flesh. Okay, he's talking allegorically as a picture to receiving and coming after him, receiving him by faith. Okay, you guys getting tired? Don't get tired. Okay, come on, don't get tired on me. Listen to me. I've known that we were doing verses 21 or 22 through 66 all weekend. You think this is hard. I've been reading books on all these verses all weekend, all right? So bear with me. Dig in. Like, what is Jesus really getting at with this bread of life stuff? Okay, you guys ready? Just breathe. Isolate the muscle. All right? Don't hit yourself. That's not good. It does help keep you awake, though. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. Again, they're just fighting each other a lot. They're just, it re- speaks of their violently trying to work out what Jesus is getting out here. 
How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Gross, right? The Jews are offended at what at first glance or listen seems to be some sort of cannibalistic cult. Okay? They were clashing severely. It's a very strong verb. But listen to what D.A. Carson and then F.F. Bruce have to say about this. Carson, any dullard could see that Jesus was not speaking literally. No one would suppose Jesus was seriously advocating cannibalism and offering himself as the first meal. Okay? If that were the case, I would suppose that the Last Supper would have been... All right, guys. We talked about this uh, a while ago. And... uh, Peter, you're first. You know, go ahead. Didn't even hurt. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Any dullard could see it's not literal, literalistic. Okay. There are times when there would be a need for a wooden interpretation in the word, and as we study how to interpret the Bible, this is not one of those places. We don't woodenly, literalistically interpret what Jesus is is saying here as you know, mowing down and munching down on Jesus's glutes and thighs. And Okay, not what he's saying. But many have interpreted it that way, missing out on some of these rules of literature and literary, uh, you know, clauses that have been given to us um, in our covenant of language that we've made with each other. Let's go on to verse 53. And Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh... There it is again. Oh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man. And it gets a little big. Hold on. Drink his blood. Okay? Drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up. At the last day. Okay, so from this point on, institutions of communion never describe the bread as flesh, but rather his body pointing into what his body accomplished for us at the cross. We got to understand these verses. They're tough verses, and as much as I kind of silly and whatever, don't want to distract you. From the big point and the push of the rest of scripture on this subject and the rest of the gospel of John on this subject. The rest of scripture leads us to other interpretation to that is not cannibalism that Jesus is is pointing to. And the rest of this chapter leads us to understand that it's not cannibalism that Jesus is talking about, but that it's coming to him. It's receiving him. It's believing in him. And as we do that, we're just eating him up. Okay? All of you grandparents, you got those little grandkids and you're just like, I could just eat them up. You know? It's, it's essentially, we, just, we are just consumed by Jesus. Or rather, we're consuming Jesus and who he is. This is is a veiled and pointed statement to teach a truth regarding belief 
and faith. It's something that we receive with gusto in our inner man as we believe in Jesus. When you look at the scripture, we know that Jesus died one time for all. Read the book of Hebrews, guys, especially chapter 10, and you see that Jesus died once for all. Once for all. Okay? And I love Catholics, but one of the doctrines that they ascribe to that I believe is heretical, and I say that with all love, is the Catholic Mass, that every time the Mass is celebrated, the priest of that Catholic Mass makes that bread into the body of Jesus again. And then the people believe that they're actually eating the body of Jesus, and that is a cleansing of their soul. And then he makes the cup, the blood of Jesus. You read the Catholic Encyclopedia, talks about this, that, you know, yes, it's truly propitiatory, which means what the priest has done, they're on the altar making the, the loaf into Jesus's body. You're eating Jesus. You're drinking his blood, okay? Uh, transubstantiation is the word, okay? Love Catholics? Man, we gotta all be careful because it's so easy to just miss interpret scripture okay and to just listen to what dudes say okay you guys go test this yourself read the bible for yourself okay if you're sensible people you got a leatherback book in your hand go read it when you read the scripture you see when jesus cried out from the cross it is finished he's saying the sacrifice that i am making right now in the shedding of my blood it's finished i've appeased the wrath of god read the book of hebrews And you see that the sacrifice that Jesus made was better than any of the blood of the bulls and the goats because those things had to be sacrificed all the time, year after year. And the priests would have to sacrifice for themselves when Jesus, as our great high priest, sacrificed himself as the priest, as the offering on that cross once for all. It's done. It's finished. And we can celebrate that. It's no longer about our works. It's about receiving Jesus by faith, what he's done in his body on the cross is applied to our account. There's a lot to be said in that. Let me just read a couple of the uh, church fathers on this. Augustine reads this passage in John and sees, quote, a figure enjoining that we should have a share in the sufferings of our Lord and that we should retain a sweet and profitable memory of the fact that his flesh was wounded and crucified for us. And so as we come, we're going to come in a little bit here and just take these elements of communion. What we have when we grab the cup is just a cup of juice, okay? It's just juice, okay? And what we have is just a little cracker, just a little bread. That's what it is. But just like baptism is an outward picture of a deep reality, so too is communion. The bread and the cup is a, it's a symbol of a deep reality, as Augustine says, a sweet and profitable memory. That when we take that bread and we munch and crunch it, we remember that Jesus' body was munched and crunched with the Roman whip and the spear and the crown of thorns and the nails and the rod that his body secured our peace. We take the cup and we remember the blood, a sweet and profitable memory 
as the blood is the, it's the source of life. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And as Jesus shed his blood at Calvary on the cross, we receive what he has done there. And it's a sweet, and I'm bringing it into my inner innerness, my inner man. I'm saying, Lord, what you've done, it's in me. I receive it. Cranmer said that figuratively, Christ is in the bread and wine, and spiritually, he is in them that worthily eat and drink the bread and wine. But really, carnally, means with Jesus' flesh, and corporally, he's in heaven, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. When we see in the New Testament, we ask, where's Jesus right now? You don't see anything in the Bible about, well, he's there, and then he's on the altar again. He's there, and he's on the altar, he's on the altar, and then all over the world, he's just on the altar all over the world every time there's a mat. No, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us, and he's coming back again. Okay? You guys doing okay? We're almost done. Trust me. Augustine goes on to explain the Lord's language here about eating and consuming his flesh and his blood as a figure bidding us communicate in our Lord's passion and secretly and profitably treasure in our memories the fact that for our sakes he was crucified and pierced. And in another place, Augustine says, believe on him and thou hast eaten. Believe on Jesus. That's what this whole section has been talking about. Tell us the works that we must do. Believe. Come. Receive. Believing and you're eating. Verse 55, and Adam, you can come on up. For my flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. In other words, it's truly satisfying is what he's getting at here. Not that it's actually your, hey guys, right here, up here on this table. It's actual blood. It's actual body up here. My flesh is food indeed. My, my blood is drink indeed. No, it's truly satisfying. The context of what he's been talking about is that bread that is eternal and doesn't perish. That's what he's speaking of. Receiving Jesus, verse 56, in an internal, intimate way. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood and abide in me and I in him, as the living Father sent me, verse 57, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me. It's a different language for feeding. It's not just eating. It's, it's munching. It's like a munching and a savoring of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He will live because of me. Verse 58, it seems like Jesus is kind of just repeating, but with different phraseology, all of these things as we wrap up his discourse here. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So it kind of gives us a little location as to where this happens, speaking to the Jews in the synagogue in Capernaum. Kind of fun. When you go to Israel, you see where the Capernaum sat, and there's uh, third century pillars and things from the third century in that synagogue. But underneath that, you can see the original foundation stones of the synagogue that Jesus had this discourse in. It's very special. So much happened there 
um, in Capernaum, the, uh, the headquarters of Jesus' ministry, the home of his family. There in the synagogue is where this dialogue took place. In verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? So this is not speaking of the twelve disciples. This is speaking of everyone who'd been following him and listening to him as a teacher. And they're listening to this language. that It's tough. I mean, everyone here would probably all a little bit like, oh, man, it's just hard to really grasp what he's getting at here in this bread and blood eating and drinking passage. This is, this is hard. Who could understand it? Who could hear it? It offends our sensibilities. In verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So now his disciples, these followers, are grumbling and doing the murmur, 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 murmur. Okay. When Jesus says, blessed are you if you're not offended because of me. Is this making you stumble? Verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So I'm telling you, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'm telling you, man, you guys got to get into the spiritual thing that I'm speaking of. You've got to receive me. Does that stumble you? What if you saw me ascend back up to the throne of God? Then would you believe? Would that stumble you even more? Because if you stick around with Jesus, he's going to ascend to the Father. That will end up happening. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Verse 63 helps us in our understanding of this complicated passage, that it's not eating flesh that Jesus is talking about. The flesh profits nothing. It's not an external work that he's trying to get from us. And when we go towards working and having to do something for Jesus, then we've lost grace. We've lost sight of grace, salvation by grace. Here he says it's not about some fleshly work of eating that I'm getting at. It's about a spiritual work of believing that I'm getting at. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him By the Father. Again, he gets into that sovereignty. God's got to do it. God's got to enable it. God's got to have the calling. But you got to come. In verse 66, we're ending here. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And so as you got to go ahead and close your things and we'll just move towards prayer and responding to the word here this morning. Here we have a multitude of people who've been following Jesus, seeing all the miracles, seeing all the signs, eating of the loaves and the bread, watching him heal people, casting out demons. This multitude hears this this message that is calling for all-out reception of Jesus as the one sent from heaven to nourish our deepest person. And they were getting hung up on the metaphor. They were getting hung up on just not grasping it. Their eyes were blind. And so they left that day. 
Next week, we're going to see this great dialogue between Jesus and the disciples where he says, are you then going to leave? And Peter's going to say, who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as you would bow your head with me and move towards prayer, Lord, here we are reading this great discourse, the bread of life passage. First of all, challenged today as we have been laboring for a food that perishes. And early on in today's message, some hour ago, you were touching our heart as we began to think of those things we've been living for, hoping that if we pursued it enough, it would satisfy the longing of our soul, our deepest desires. And we've been finding that it's so temporary. And Lord, today you're calling us to come to the food that is eternal. To come to believe in Jesus for the saving of our souls. For those in this room that uh, they're kind of a skeptic, kind of a critic, just, you know, if God did this, then I'd believe. If God did that, then I'd believe. When you have the inner testimony of His calling you right now, there's plenty of evidence, there's plenty of signs and wonders to consider. One of the most incredible is that he's not dead, he's alive, and there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem to prove it. But instead of having a heart of seeing as believing today here in Prineville, God's brought you here so that you would believe. You would come to him. And you would see him to be the source of life. so I invite you to do just that today. I invite you to come to Jesus. You feel the Father calling you, beckoning you to be His child. Come to Him. Receive Him. And if you'd use this picture today, eat of Him. Partake of Him. Receive life from Him today in your inner person. Maybe right now where you're at, you would just... Maybe you would get on your knees where you're at. Maybe you would lift up a hand where you're at. Maybe you would stand where you're at. Because Jesus is in this place. And you would just say to him, Lord, I'm right here and I need you. I need life today. And anyone who the Lord calls today, if that's you, he won't cast you out. He won't reject you. No one will snatch you out of his hand. You have the hope. We read it three times today, four times today. You have the hope of being risen from the dead and being with him forever. And so grab hold of him today. Eat of him today. 
During this last song, we're going to come for communion. We're going to take these elements that we've talked much about of. We're going to take the bread in our hand and the cup in our hand, and you can look at those elements and you can ponder the bread and that Jesus' flesh was given to us so that he could be nailed on that Roman cross as a sacrifice for our sins. In that sweet and precious blood of the God-man, truly God, truly man, was spilled on earthly soil so that anyone who would receive of him would have forgiveness of sins. If you know you need forgiveness of sins today, you're at the right place. Come to Jesus. There's an old Anglican book of common prayer that says, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. So during this song, come on up. Got communion up front on each side. We've got communion in the back. I know a couple weeks ago we were low on communion. We should have enough today. And take this prayer. Feeding on Jesus in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Come on up and go ahead.